Hello, I'm Bryn Lucas and this is It's All About Me. And my special guest this week is the first ever winner of Big Brother. It's Craig Phillips. Craig Phillips, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure, Bryn. Never done one before. Oh, really? This is a whole new thing for you? It certainly is. I'm a podcast virgin until today. Not sure what I can say about that. Thank you. You always remember your first time, right? (laughs) (laughs) When people think about you, they always think about Big Brother, the first ever Big Brother winner. But let's go way back to the start of Craig Phillips. Who are you? Where do you come from? (laughs) I'm this little scouser who come from quite a run-down kind of portion of North Liverpool area called Seaforth. And uh, I was born and bred there, 1971, just by the docks it was. And uh, my mum and dad, they kind of had relatively basic jobs, you know. So our, our upbringing was kind of normal for that area. But the schools we went to and things weren't really the best. So I, I wouldn't say I had the best start. I hammered school as much as I could. Unfortunately, I was dyslexic, so didn't get on that well and it wasn't recognised as much when I was a kid so it was a struggle at times through school and I kind of got to the age of 13 and I wasn't enjoying school that much and I I in fact started working at 13 years of age so not many people know that they see me in the buildings and construction background but my very first job brain I was a butcher believe it or not butcher (laughs) a <laughs> butchie yes yeah that came out of nowhere i wasn't expecting uh, no not many people do know that no they just know me from my building background how? i'll tell you how it come about right i was a very keen bird watcher still today i love me wildlife in fairness and a really really keen bird watcher and um i actually had a kestrel and an owl when i was only 13 years of age a <laughs> little bit cliche like the movie kez remember that was a little <laughs> bit like me when i was a, a kid at school and i used to go to this butcher shop and I think I had 50 pence pocket money in them days. And that used to buy me enough scrap bits of meat to feed my birds basically all week. So all of a sudden I'd be going there after school and it was all good and well. And this one particular occasion, I remember coming home to my mum saying, Mum, I don't know how, but I've actually got too much money. And my mum was saying, what do you mean you got too much money? I said, I didn't start off with this much money today. And I've I went to the sweet shop on the way to school, went to the butcher shop, I bought my meat, and then all of a sudden I've got too much money. So my mum said, well, have you been to the butcher shop? Have they give you your change and, and overchanged you? I said, I think they have. So my mum said, okay, well, you know what to do, do the right thing. So I went back to this butcher shop, explained the situation to me. And uh, my mum was a customer there as well, so they kind of knew me. And um, I told them, you know, I've got about 30 or 40 pence, too much money, and I don't know where it's come from, and yours was the last shop I went in. So they said to me, they said, well, well, we can't check now, but at the end of the night, when we do the cash rolling of the tills, we'll check. And uh, I said, well, we'll be back tomorrow anyway. I'll be getting me a bit of meat for me beds. <laughs> and I turned up the next day, and they said, sure enough, Craig, our tills had a little bit less money in, and we give it to you by accident. So they said, for being honest, you can keep the money, and then they chatted with my mum a few days or weeks later and said, we really like your son. He's really honest. We'd like to give him a job. <laughs> and that's how my first job came about, wow. working in a butcher shop, for being honest. Oh, well, that's fantastic. Good to hear. We'd had a tough year in Fairness Brim because my dad was run over by a drunk driver. And oh. um, that had a devastating impact, of course, to my mum. You know, when we weren't very well off at all. We, we, were, we were struggling just living in this little uh, 
two bedroom, two up, two down, terraced house. You know, things were tough for us in them days in, in Liverpool. And with losing our dad, you know, all of a sudden you've lost the breadwinner. For me, it was a great way of earning a little bit of money, but also meant managing to bring home meat every day, which helped my mum. Because my poor little mum, she had to struggle and take on three jobs. So she was working, you know, morning, noon and night to try and support me and my sister. My sister Bev, she was only 15 years of age. So it was tough times, you know, it was in the mid 80s. Money wasn't there. We lived in a poor part of Liverpool and there wasn't much opportunities. So for me to work, bring a bit of money home. My first job, the first week's wages I got was £10. Now, in them days, for a kid at school, that was a lot of money. I felt rich. I really (laughs) did feel wealthy. And the fact I could bring fresh meat home as well every day, which was a big, big help for mum. So, yeah, I'd say at a young age, I got kind of in the work mode. You know, I was struggling in school with my dyslexia and I just got this edge to want to earn money and want to be successful and want to to work. You know, I just got into a good habit of getting up early in the morning, get my schoolwork out of the way, race home on the school bus, get to the butcher's shop. And all I was doing was the cleaning up from four o'clock till six o'clock. I literally scrubbed blocks, scrubbed the floor. But I actually loved it. And then... I started to work on a Saturday afternoon and my wages went up from £10 up to £15 and all of a sudden I felt rich, you know, and I felt quite empowered as well. I was learning a lot. My boss was only about 24 and his father worked at the shop. So it kind of felt like a brother then and then a father, you know, that I didn't actually have. They really took me under my wing and, and taught me a lot, you know, about business. I ended up leaving school, didn't sit one single exam. Oh, really? And um, no, no, never sat a, a single exam. And it's quite ironic because then little did I ever know, you know, 20 odd years on from that, I, I would open the biggest construction training academy in the northwest of England. I employed 26 teachers and had 152 students under my wing. So for a boy who kind of hardly went to school and got expelled quite a lot, left with no exams, but a job in a butcher's shop, you know, it, it turned out well. You've got dyslexia, so that's obviously going to cause you a few problems along the way anyway, but particularly back in the 80s when people didn't really know what it was. What was that like for you as a kid? It was quite difficult because the the teachers, you know, we're trained to to recognise it or really know what to do about it. I was kind of looked at as being a little bit stupid, really. You know, you kind of go and sit at the back of the class and then all of a sudden when you're feeling a bit stupid in a class, you just start misbehaving and kind of distracting other kids. So I didn't have the best of time in school. I mean, I had fun with my friends and things like that, but... I found the work was quite hard. Certainly the English side of things I struggled on. Maths I was always okay on. What I found myself doing, Brim, was was sagging off school and just wanting to go and hang out with my friends and, you know, even go and work in the butcher shop, which at the time, I know it doesn't sound right and I wouldn't encourage anybody to do it now, but at the time, for me, the circumstances we were under, it worked better for me and it, and it was the right thing for me to do because me learning management skills in a butcher's, how to deal with people over a counter, how to save people. And I was doing my maths, you know, on the on the tills there, adding things up and, you know, getting business skills as well. I think, you know, by the time I was kind of 15, 16 years of age, or I'd left school then working full time in there. I would go to the abattoir twice a week with the boss. You know, I was learning about buying and selling and the markup on things and the profits and that. 
And it just put me in real good stead for, for running my own company, you know, and that's what I went on to do. You know, by the time I was 18 years of age, although having a, a tough time in school with the dyslexia and then kind of having, well, a bad time, obviously, family time, losing my dad. And then that home life was kind of a, a juggling act from managing a little bit of social time, having to go to school a little bit. But then actually all my focus on was working in the butcher shop and learning more that way. You know, I had I had five great years in the butcher shop from 13 up until 18 years of age, and then kind of could see that there wasn't a, a, a huge future for for small shops, really. I was looking at it on the, the high street we were in Liverpool. It was kind of dying off, and the, the big supermarkets were wiping out all the, the small little shops. And I just kind of thought, I don't know if it's going to be for me to, to stay in the, the butcher's industry all my life. I kind of needed something different, really, but I didn't quite know what to do or where to go and I didn't have any any qualifications it was quite quite a scary time yeah I bet it was and you were how old when you lost your dad uh, just 13 years of age so also the butcher shop all ties in really do you think having that job it was a release you say a kind of distraction but it was a release as well to be able to spend time around people and not have to go back home yes yeah the the John Watson the chap's name was you own the butchers so he was about 24 25 years of age and his dad was a little bit older than my dad, but he kind of took me under his wing as a father figure. You know, they really looked out for me. And I kind of think after every a tragedy that happens, you know, it was devastating for, for, for us as a family and certainly my, my poor mum. I have to look back and think, well, try and pick a positive out of a real negative situation there. And, you know, maybe if my dad hadn't have had his accident, my pathway might have gone down different routes. I just don't know. You know, it's a strange one. And, it all happens when you're at that teenage years where you're confused about life, you're confused about your career paths and what you're going to do. It was quite a stressful time, certainly mm. where we lived in, in Liverpool. And as I mentioned earlier, the schools we went to, you know, they weren't the best ones. Yeah, yeah, it sounds tough. What about your parents then? What did they do for a living? My dad worked for British Gas. He would lay the pipes, you know, so he was more on the tools, groundwork. And um, so it was a very physical kind of in the construction world a little bit. It wasn't the best paid at the time. My mum worked in an apple barrel, like a fruit shop in the days, and then she worked in the bar area of an evening time, which, you know, again, in them days, they, they weren't the best paid jobs. Yeah, so there's definitely some link, if you think about it, your parents working very, very hard. You seem to have that same work ethic. I think for me, working at a young age, starting to earn that little bit of money, being able to help my mum, and my sister just just made me hungry for it. I wanted to branch out. I wanted to do better than than everybody else did in our area, you know, of Seaforth. And then I got to 18 years of age and, and my boss decided he wanted a bit of a career change. But he kept the butcher shop open. At the time, I was the manager then of two of the butcher shops. So I was, you know, learning how to do the bookkeeper and the buying and selling. I was driving at that point. So I'd go to the abattoirs and prepare all the books for the accountants as well every week and I really took this management role on what I just thought I need to do something for myself I uh, decided to leave Liverpool then and go live in Cyprus okay right <laughs> me and a good pal of mine we, we'd go to Cyprus each year they had a little uh, little holiday home so they were very good with me and they used to take me out there and um, I'd spend all summer with with Lee sometimes in the summer holidays and I love the island the lifestyle on the beach there and uh, I'd met a young girl there as well on a little holiday romance and thought you know what a lifestyle living there and 
uh, all of a sudden, after having about five or six weeks there, I realised that, you know, I could actually could move there. And uh, I'd given my notice to the butcher's shop. I said, you know, get yourself another manager. And once you're covered, um, I'm going to be heading out to Cyprus. I chatted with one of my pals in school. He was like, I want to leave as well. Can I come with you? I said, yeah, yeah, sure. And we couldn't get flights out there. We decided, well, we'll hitchhike all the way through Europe and uh, eventually get to Cyprus and start living our new life out there. But then we got a little bit distracted and three months later, still traveling around Europe, getting carried away as two 18-year-old lads would do, <laughs> getting into mischief and things. And uh, if I remember rightly, we were over... Czechoslovakia and um, I think there was some civil wars breaking out around that time and uh, I remember speaking to my mum on the phone and she was like Craig it's on the news that this has happened and this has happened so um, we were kind of ordered then you've got to come home and uh, be safe so so we did do I came home and now I found myself no job no money no qualifications <laughs> what do I do where do I go and uh, I ended up staying in Shropshire then and that's where I uh, ended up going to college. I got a job with Reeking Council, doing the groundworks all around the Shropshire area. And I was just a labourer, young lad labouring, and I thought, well, I really need to have a trade behind me. So I went to college, did one day release, and then a couple of night school classes, and literally 18 months later, come away with my city and gills, and become a bricklayer you must have been pretty proud of that really if you think about education leaving school not sure what to do going around europe yeah. and all that kind of you must have come back and you've got a certificate or a bit of paper in your hand saying you know what you've earned this yeah it was it was quite it, it was a good feeling there but i tell you on the other hand it was a very daunting kind of um time thinking i've got to go to college because then all of a sudden you're kind of realizing I'm 18, just going on 19, you know, I do have to have a career here and I do need some qualifications of some sort. I shouldn't have messed around that much in school, you know. I should have maybe listened to the teachers a bit more. I should have not sagged off school. But at the time, you know, it, it was working for me. I was earning that money that we so desperately needed as a family. So I just kind of thought, OK, well, now's the time to to be a bit more serious about it and get these qualifications and one of the bricklayers I was labouring for in Shropshire, he kept saying to me, Craig, you're quite a smart kid. You switched on. You're very hard work. And I was young and strong. And he said, you can't just be a labourer all your life, you know, and earn the, the, the basic amounts of money. You need to have this trade. And he helped me kind of look into what colleges were local. And it was real daunting going there and having a meeting and telling them my background. And But I think it helped working for the council. They were happy to give me the relief for one or two days a week to go on the college course. But the moment I got my qualifications, that was the kind of turnaround point for me then because I was working, you know, full-time Monday to Friday, but then also starting to do weekend jobs as you do and start trying to path away to get my own customers where I could branch away then from working for a big company to actually work for myself. And things just went from strength to strength. I think by the time I was 25 years of age then, I topped a million pound turnover and I was employing nearly 30 staff, you know, 30 qualified builders at the time. That's crazy, isn't it? But it shows real enterprise, doesn't it? It shows that you're not the sort of person that is just going to sit back and take what you're given, that you actually are striving all the time. You could get a trade and you could have that trade for the rest of your life. But you went and thought, I need to get my own customers. That lent to more customers, to more customers, to more customers, to, to having staff and this big booming business. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, 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 get the pleasure now to go around construction academies all over the country trying to you know doing guest speaking and encouraging a lot of the young students there who are starting their, their careers out in the construction industry and 
you know, I tell them about my background and I, I often say to them, once you've got a construction qualification, that's with you for the rest of your life. And you can use it in almost any country in the world nowadays. There's always going to be a call for some form of builder, whether it's maintenance or, you know, um, improvements on, on the buildings. I feel as if I've, I've got through to a lot of students in the past, kind of tell them about my background. When you, you're standing up on stage and you've got two or three hundred of them sitting in front of you and they're, and they're quite looking up to, to me and what I've achieved and, you know, where I started from. And it, it's a nice feeling. It's a really good feeling because some of these colleges you go to, again, they're in quite, quite deprived areas and, you know, the, 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 the kids that are there or the, the young men that are there predominantly, they haven't had a good start in life. Their parents haven't even had a good start or background in life. So, you know, I do appreciate it's quite difficult for them to get that break and get that first start. And you have to take chances in life as well. You know, not everything works out. And if it doesn't quite work out one direction you're going in, of course, you can always divert a little bit and move in a different direction, a little bit like me with the butchers, you know. I think it also helps as well that if you're talking to people that come from a more of a deprived background and you actually come from that background yourself, you're easily mm. relatable, aren't you, straight away? It's not a case yes. of somebody who sounds, I don't know, maybe sounds a bit more like me, a bit sort of middle class, you know, trying to tell somebody, <laughs> you don't need, and I didn't go to a great school whatsoever. I went to a very normal school in a place called Farnborough, which is not a very posh place at all, Farnborough. I went to a kind of a normal school and people seem to think I must have gone to a public school. If I stand up in front of people and say, right, become a brickie, they'll just tell me to sling the hook, mate, wouldn't they? <laughs> go and do one, shove off. <laughs> I don't know. You see, I listen to your lovely voice, Brendan, think to myself, I wish I could speak a little bit more better like you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to dwell too much on your 13-year-old self, but yes. I think people listening to this may not have known about your dad. What was your relationship like with him? It was, um, I mean, from what I can remember of it, I often look back at it and I probably, I probably shouldn't do this, but I, I compare it with other pals of mine and their dads. And I probably, if I was being honest with you, Bryn, it's a li- little bit of jealousy, right? Um Losing your dad at the time was devastating, of course. And I, I kind of think, well, my relationship with my dad, was it was it brilliant? It certainly wasn't bad. But I wouldn't say it was brilliant in a way we, we got to spend a lot of time together and we'd done sports and various things together. And I'm old enough and mature enough to know it wasn't my dad's fault. But I think, you know, it boils down to that again. We were very poor, you know, is, is, the, is predominantly the, the problem. My dad had to work a lot. My dad was up and out every morning, kind of like about six o'clock in the morning. So Bev and I would get up for school and my dad would already have left the door and he worked very hard and he would come home quite exhausted. And I remember he'd come in and he would always have to go in, in the bath first because he's been digging the trenches up, you know, and laying gas pipes. You know, he was always very, very dirty the way he was dressed and come home from work. So he was dirty, he was tired, he would have to have a bath and then We'd have got home from school and mum would have been making tea. Our little kitchen was so small, we didn't even have a dining table. So we had a little tiny bit of a breakfast bar where me and Bev would have to sit on there. It was just big enough for two. And then my dad would have his tea on his knee. And that was in another room. So again, you know, as I'm growing up and we've just built our house and designed it and things, you know, I was saying to my wife, I want to have a dining table an open plan one where our kitchen and island is. So as a family, we're all sitting together and we're all having, 
dinner and we're all socialising. You know, I mean, our baby's not old enough to talk yet, but <laughs> I just, I like having an insight and I like eating my dinner at the table, knowing she's eating hers at the same time as us and we're together as a little bit of a family. So maybe that's a little bit of, I'm looking back now in life at the things I maybe didn't have. You know, my dad certainly didn't mistreat us in any way. Very rarely were we told off or disciplined or anything. You know, there was a there was a nice balance. Mum used to tell us off a little bit because we would probably play up a little bit more for mum. You know, and if we, if we went a bit too far, mum would only have to say, wait till your dad comes home from work, you know, and he'll t- put you right. And then just that little bit of a threat to wait till your dad comes home from, from, from work, that was enough to kind of make you a little bit frightened. You don't mess around because I don't want him to shout at us if we were naughty, you know. Uh, and I didn't want to upset him or disappoint him in any way. So I wouldn't say it was the closest of relationships. You know, I used to look up to him. He was always a kind of a powerful, strong man. I remember as a kid, he would put his arm up, clench his fist and show us his biceps. And I remember thinking, gosh, he's got such big arms. He's like <laughs> the Hulk, you know. And, and I would swing on them. I'd cuff my hands around his bicep and dangle my body weight, you know, on his arms. And uh, so I always looked at him as a very strong, powerful man. And then kind of weekends when we were off, this was before the butcher's days when I was 10, 11, 12, kind of when I can remember. Saturdays was always kind of play out day, you know, with my friends and we would go to the park and things around us. My dad, unfortunately, although he was only 48 when he was killed, he suffered a lot with rheumatoid arthritis. So with working, you know, in, in cold, wet, damp trenches, digging and things, and in them days, everything was dug by hand. So it was a very physical, hard, hard job. Um, he suffered a lot with arthritis. So come Saturday when we were running around the park and go on our bikes and see our friends and play football, dad couldn't do much of that with us. So, you know, we didn't really get that playtime much with him as well. And then the Sundays, most times I can remember being with my dad, would on a Sunday afternoon at 12 o'clock, he would go to his local pub, it's a little social club. And I used to go with him. You know, you could bring your kids into the pub then. Only on a Sunday afternoon, they would, they would let them in. And I, I used to play pool uh, with my dad and, and other men. And I used to like being around the other men, you know, playing pool. And surprisingly, I'd become a very good pool player. This was only like 12 years of age. I used to go on a Sunday. And I think it was, I think it was either five pence or 10 pence to play a game then. And all the other men used to line their coins up along the edge in order who was playing next. And the winner stayed on. Now, we had a little small pool table at home from, oh, from when I was about six or seven, and I used to play on it every night, so it was really good. And all of a sudden, months went by, and on a Sunday, I would get there at 12 o'clock, it opened, and I'd go on at the start, become a winner, and then I'd go through about 10, 15, 20 guys, and none of them would actually win me. I mean, mum used to say to me, you know, are they just letting you win? And the guys got so frustrated, they had a meeting, and all of a sudden got me barred. So the committee of this little social club, Seaforth Social Club it was called, had to tell my dad, you can't bring your son in. And I remember dad telling me, unfortunately, you know, you can't come in, Craig, because you're winning everybody on the pool. And I used to say to my mum, you know, all the 10 pences that you give me, when I'm older, I'll be a professional snooker or pool player. And all them 10 pences you're giving me over a weekend, I'll pay you back in £10 notes, I used to tell my mum. <laughs> Your mum, is she still with us? Uh, no, no, sadly, mum. Got Alzheimer's who about 16 years ago now. Uh, just started slowly decline over the years. And then we lost her just two years ago. Um, oh. 
yeah, yeah, she kind of declined to a point where um, we had to put her in full-time care, unfortunately. It broke our heart, but it was the best thing for us, you know, when my sister was trying to manage her, my mum's sister and things, and my mum had remarried over the years, so my stepfather was getting very, very difficult for them to, you know, full-time care for mum. I'd spend hours kind of spoon-feeding my mum, you know. it come to a point where she was sitting there, her body was still there, but in mind completely couldn't do anything so it was very very sad you know in the last two three years of her life was terrible you know often Bev and I would go and see her and we'd spend hours and hours kind of spoon feeding her the nurse would be cleaning her up and things and you actually think to yourself you know Bryn it, it ain't worth living you know when you got to that stage uh, and for many many nights Beverly and I would say you know we just wish mum would go to sleep now and, you know, not suffer anymore and go to heaven sort of thing. So for us, when she did um, eventually kind of pass away, for us, it was a kind of a relief, really. You know, we felt like we lost mum many, many years before that. Yeah, it's such a horrible thing, isn't it? Dementia, any form really of Alzheimer's, it's just horrific. It is, yeah, really, really is. It just steals a, a life, you know, away from someone. My mum was always a very... You know, a lovely, bubbly uh, personality and character. Uh, everybody loved her, and then all of a sudden, this illness comes along, and it just completely steals every ounce of personality out of you. Yeah, mm. very sad. What was she like when you were a kid? Then um, she was a great mom. You know, a little bit like my dad. She would have to work a lot, so our time was kind of cherished with her. Um, but but she was a great mom. You know, she had everything kind of against her. She would always be off Sunday and, you know, she would always pride herself on making that Sunday dinner and me and my dad would be coming home from the little social club on the Sunday after playing pool. She was good. She tried to give give Bev and I everything we wanted, trying to get as nice clothes that you, you needed to wear to be cool in school and things like that. And we didn't get to go on much holidays because, you know, again, we were, we were very poor sort of thing. So, so for us, a family holiday would have been only as far as North Wales, really. You know, it's only an hour, an hour away from Liverpool. And both my mum and dad didn't drive, so we didn't have cars. It would have to be an auntie or an uncle or something would take us or we would get the train. And that was quite an adventure to uh, leave Liverpool on a train and go to North Wales. So, yeah, mum was, was good. She gave us the best she could do. When we lost dad at 13, you know, I think mum was only about 37, 38 years of age. So she was still a very young lady. She suffered badly. She really, really did suffer badly. And we, we all did, of course, as a family. But what it what it tends to do, Bryn, is it pulls you even closer and more of a stronger unit when you have such a tragedy like that. So, you know, we've become very, very, very close, a lot closer probably after mm. dad's accident than, than we were beforehand. You mentioned your sister, Bev. Is it just you and her? Yes, yeah, just Beverly and I, yeah, only a small family. And are you the elder one or the younger? Uh, I'm the youngest one. I'm the baby, yeah. Bev is about just over two years older than me. I see. So do you almost become the man of the house and then take it upon yourself to, to try and provide? Yeah, I did. I remember my uncle saying to me, and it was it was maybe about a week or two weeks after, after my dad's accident. It might have been around, around about the funeral time. I remember my me, me uncle, who's a real big, quite an intimidating-looking guy, and I was always very tiny. I still am short, you know, Bryn. You've met me. I'm only <laughs> kind of five foot six and a half. I've always been little. And when I was in school at 13 years of age, I was probably only about three foot tall. I was really little. And I remember my uncle putting his hands on my shoulders and saying to me, 
you know, Craig, you're the only man in the family now. You've got to step up. You've got to look after your sister. You've got to look after your mum and things. And I've got to be honest, really, that was the most terrifying thing anyone had ever said to me at the time. You've got to look after your mum and your sister. You're the only man in the house. And I didn't feel like a man. I didn't feel like I was able to protect them in any way. And I'd lie in bed many, many nights quite scared. And the area that we lived in, a lot of houses would be getting broken into and things. And we had a dog, you know. Most people had dogs in, in them kind of roads that we lived in, in little mid-terraced houses. We had a little small backyard. Most people would have a dog just to protect them. And the crime rate was quite high in the area we lived. And for me as a kid to think I've got to protect my mum and sister, it was the most daunting thing. And I started going to boxing as well. And when I started working in the butcher's shop, um, my, my boss, John Watson, he kind of liked boxing and liked training. And we'd go out jogging sometimes when we finished work at six o'clock and all the butchers was cleaned. We'd go jogging and then we, there was a little gym at the end of our road called the Fitness Connection. In fairness, it's still there now. And bizarrely, that little house that me, my mum and my sister and dad lived in, um, I've bought it, I own it, and uh, we rent it out now. <laughs> that little gym is still at the top of our road. It's still called the Fitness Connection. And I've, I've still got my membership card from there from when I was 13. And I was the very first member. It's a 0001. <laughs> on it. Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that I've still got weird, it. I keep lots it? of little weird memorabilia things like that. I've now got boxes and boxes of them in storage because you know the last 20 years working in the in the public eye and things like that i've been invited to so many weird wonderful things where you get a badge or a you know a band or something like that a vip you know backstage pass of some sort and i keep all of them and i've got boxes and boxes and boxes of them and now and again i have a little route through them and i do know i've still got that one from from the gym but yeah going back to that scary time you know i started boxing because i didn't want to be bullied and i thought i've got to be harder you know in the area that i live I, you know, I went on, you know, and still to this day, you know, I still helped my sister out and protected my mum and financially supported them, um, you know, a lot more than, than than I ever dreamed I could do, you know, um, buying them both houses, brand new cars, all sorts of things like that over the years. So, yeah, I tried to look at the, the negatives that happen in life and try and turn them into a little bit of a positive thing, you know. And I do believe that, you know, I generally got picked to go on Big Brother because of my background. Oh, really? So you think that your background is what led you to ultimately appeal to them and get you on that show? Yeah, I applied against 45,000 people. And from the months and months of uh, auditions and uh, application forms and group games, psychiatric screening, police checks, medicals, all of that, when I got narrowed down to that last 10 people to go in the first Big Brother house, I generally believe it was down to my story and my background, why I was picked, you know, and whether it was destined to to, to have this pathway. I don't know, you know, really, really, really don't know. You know, yeah. going back to the game when I was a kid, doing the boxing and doing all the training, I become strong, physically strong. I become strong in the mind. Uh, I became more confident as a person. And in business, you know, I became strong and confident. Certainly put me in, in good stead, you know, even up to, to where I am today, you know. Yeah, boxing teaches a lot of discipline, doesn't it? It really, really does, you know, unbelievably. And from the age of, I think I was about 18 years of age, 18 and a half, I, I did Thai boxing, Muay Thai. I did that for 10 years, full contact. And when we lived in Shropshire, when my mum remarried, they led to live in Shropshire and they had a pub there. So I lived in a pub for 10 years 
And, you know, living in a pub life, you know, you get obligations downstairs. Often I'll be upstairs doing my VAT returns up in my bedroom, running my building company from there. And all of a sudden we get a phone call and there was a bit of trouble in the bar and I run down. So dozens and dozens and dozens of times I can recall having to stop, you know, drunken men from fighting and having that boxing and tie boxing background let's say made it very easy for me you know I did never have to hit anybody or anything like that but I I was trained enough to control them and contain them and hold them down or get them out the premises really quick without having too much more more trouble you know in the bar sort of thing again you know all them little things skills that I picked up and confidence and everything I had as a young kid um, helped me in later life you know I didn't never know at that point I'd be owning a pub you know, with my mum and um, having to throw drunken people out of it on a regular basis. <laughs> we've talked about your mum and we've talked about your dad and you've mentioned your sister, Beverly, but what was your relationship like with her? Um, I mean, we used to school time from a very young kid. I can remember kind of thinking, oh, she hates me. You know, I wanted to hang around with her and some of her friends and things like that because she was a bit older and he did a bit more cooler stuff than me. And she used to always like, no, you cramp my style, that type of brother-sister relationship. And she used to batter me on <laughs> <laughs> occasions, you know. I think it, she said I got to about 12, 13 years of age, started getting a little bit stronger and then all of a sudden the brother can fight the elder sister sort of thing because we did fight on a, a literally a daily basis so I can recall it. But um, we then became very, very, very close in fairness. Um, Although she stayed living in Liverpool, she ended up having children quite a young age. She was only about 20, 21 when she had her um, her first child, Kelly. I kind of, you know, went down a very different pathway with moving away and running a building company and that. And Beverly kind of became the the, the brilliant mother, you know, she was on her own. Um, She brought up two children on her own and still on her own today. And uh, has done a fantastic job of bringing them up. So for me, I kind of then become quite a lot more closer to Bev when she had the kids because I helped her, you know, supported her both financially. And then I couldn't support her much physically because I was down in Shropshire running my company. But if weekends I would come up to Liverpool, like every couple of weekends, um, you know, I would always take the kids out because I was earning relatively good money then still for a young man you know, 21, 22, 23 years of age. Yeah. I was earning good money and, um, you know, we could take the kids on nice holidays and treat them to lots of things that Bev and I couldn't really have, you know, when we were a kid, just generally my mum and dad's circumstances. So that was kind of nice. And for me, it was like like having kids of my own because there was no father around for them. Yeah, I did spend sure. a lot of time with them. And as they grew up, you know, still today, they refer to as I'm like a father figure to them. People often say to me, well, they have said to me many times over the years, well, why haven't you settled down, Craig? Why haven't you had children yourself? And, you know, I, I had Nelly, my first child, you know, at 47 mm. years of age. And I think being so close to my sister, Bev, and her, her bringing the kids up on her own, I had all them holidays away with Bev and the kids, you know, treating them to Disneyland, Florida, and giving them all those lovely experiences and things. I felt as if I fulfilled a little part of my life, which we haven't kids um, right. but the good thing was I could just give them back when they get too noisy and <laughs> crying too much when they were young you know so I kind of had the best of both worlds you know I, I got really nuttled down into the building career and running my building company and helping my mum and Rob at their pub uh, but then I had the kind of the family life at weekends you know with 
with Beverly and the kids. And they would often come up and spend, you know, all summer holidays in our pub. It was nice. We had a relatively good balance. So we'd always kept, you know, close. And um, the kids, of course, they're grown up now, Kelly and Lauren, Beverly's children. And um, they fled the nest, you know, they do their own thing now. And one of them has actually become a mother themselves. Are you the cool Uncle Craig then? I, I mean, I was when I was when I was a bit younger, and they were younger, of course. When you think when I won Big Brother just twenty years ago, now Kelly and Lauren, you know, only kind of ten and eight years of age. So for them in school in this little school in Seaforth, and all of a sudden their uncles on national television, he's on every newspaper, every magazine, every radio station, you know, is talking about the winner of Big Brother, and that happens to be their uncle. You know, so they were the coolest kids in there. At one point, my profile was so much where we had to send bodyguards to school to pick up Kelly and Lauren because the press outside in them days, they could take pictures of of children under 16, you know. I was racing around the country being followed everywhere I went, so they couldn't get me to chase my family. You went in the first ever series of Big Brother when it was really deemed as an experiment it was yeah no one had ever heard of big brother or reality tv wasn't even born then Bryn. so it was it was kind of a social experiment you know and when i first heard about the, the the concept and the idea it was in holland it was a documentary in holland and they were talking about the format and it could potentially come to england and it could be big etc and for me you know at that point i never wanted to work on television i certainly didn't want to become famous in any way i was quite content with my building company and how it was going but at the time i was collecting for john harris she was a, a young downstream on girl who needed the heart lung transplant and we needed a quarter of a million to take her to america to get a private operation because at that time the nhs wouldn't treat down syndrome children for heart and lung transplants so we had this kind of daunting task to try and raise a quarter of a million pounds and we were getting nowhere to be fair and what attracted me to this documentary was if you went in this reality tv program and actually won you won seventy thousand pounds and when i looked at you know what you had to do you didn't really have to do much you only had to live in a house and be yourself and just live with other people and eventually, you know, if the public didn't vote you out, you could potentially be the winner and win £70,000. I was thinking, that's easy. <laughs> Surely I can win that, you know. What can go wrong type of thing? I was wrong. It wasn't easy, that's for sure. But, you know, no one knew about it. This was in 1999. You know, I think it took about seven or eight months all in all with the applications from when I first wrote the letter. So I, I watched this documentary. I wrote off a letter to the production company and I just told them a little bit about myself and my background and, you know, I, I'd like to do this show. And then it was, ooh, I think it was about six or eight weeks later. I'm up there on a roof. We'd just done this new roof on a house. I was finishing it off. I was doing the lead flashing around the chimney breast. And then all of a sudden my mobile phone rang and they were quite big in them days. And I did it in my tool pouch, this big square thing of a phone, like a brick. And I answered it, and this lady was saying, I'm a, I'm a television producer working for Endemol and uh, to a programme called Big Brother. And I was saying to her, but whose brother are you? Well, sorry, what? <laughs> you? I'd, you know, I'd never had a telephone call from a, a television producer before, and I couldn't actually remember writing the letter. <laughs> she said, you wrote off. I was like, did I? What, what's, what's it called? She was like, Endemol, Big Brother. And I was like, I've never heard of Endemol or Big Brother, because no one had heard of Big Brother in England at that point. You know, after a couple of seconds chatting, it was like, oh, of course I did. I remember it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, that was where it, it kind of all started for me, you know. 
she invited me along to do a, a group game where I went to Birmingham and there was hundreds and hundreds of people there. And I just kind of got split up into groups of six or eight people. And you know where they, they send you to do a little bit of an equation where you have to work out a situation. You might be six or eight of you and you've got to get half of the team across there. You can't step over the line. You're in a big circle. You've got ropes, you've got buckets and blah, 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 all these type of things. And what I found was, again, my building background, I mean, manager skills from butcher shop and managing builders and on site cut in really, really quickly. And I found myself, I might have been a little bit bossy, but I was directing everybody in my group because I was good with practical skills working on it. I was saying, no, you four have to stand there. If you pull that rope across, you walk around, that'll bridge over there. We'll pass that through. No one goes in the circle and we've achieved it. And everything we were doing, the rest of the group were listening to me. We were doing the practical task and we were finishing it and winning. And all of a sudden, I felt the cameras really homing in on me more than anybody else, you know, in the groups that I was put in. And uh, I kind of thought at the end of the day, I think that went quite well, really. And it did go well, you know, I got asked back for more. And uh, it kind of went from there, really. Lots of interviews, lots and lots of uh, application forms. Wow, some of them 60, 70 pages long, you know. Some questions answer no less than 100 words or 200 words, you know. So they wanted to know in depth the real ins and outs of, of, of me as an individual and what I did. Do you look back at the Big Brother experience with happy memories or some parts of it with regrets? I don't have any regrets at all about my time in the house and, and afterwards. My time in the house, I found difficult in areas many times just through boredom, really. Before I went into the house, I was working 100 hours a week, more or less managing 30-odd guys, juggling two or three very large jobs. You know, some of them were quarter of a million pound jobs that we had on. And, you know, I got 20 guys on that and five more guys on another job, another five on another one. I was floating between them all. Every day in my life, I had meetings. I was busy. I was always running late. I was juggling so many balls, spinning all these plates, trying to keep everything above water, you know. And then all of a sudden, I'm picked and I'm in this house and then I've got nothing to do. I've got no watch, I've got no time, I've got no diary, I don't have to be anywhere, I'm not late for anything. I'm now living with 10 people I don't know or I wouldn't necessarily choose to live with, certainly not be my friends, you know. And all of a sudden that life change from 100 mile an hour to nothing was, was testing that. And what you've got to remember, what the viewers seen at home was a very clever edited version of, I think, 38 cameras rolling for 24 hours a day. So you've got a lot of material to chop down. And to make that type of genre TV, you need the good, the bad, the ugly. I tell you what, Bryn, I sat there every day on my couch, right, thinking to myself, how on earth can anyone possibly make a TV show out of this? <laughs> this appears just nonsense to me. Now, I couldn't be further from <laughs> the truth, you know, or, you know, I couldn't be any more wrong, could I? You know, the, the show was fantastically received by the public, the press, and it broke many, many records, you know. It broke Channel 4's viewing figures ever in their history. You know, I, I went on to win most live telephone calls, got a placement in the Guinness Book of World Records. I won the best live TV moments of the year, best pre-recorded TV moments of the year. And all of a sudden, it, it put a foundations in for an entirely new career for me. I sitting there every day thinking, how on earth can you make a show? To how it was made and how it turned out and how it passed my life is unbelievable. It's completely opposite 
of what I expected. Would I like to do it again? Many people ask me. No, no, I wouldn't really do it again. Ten years ago when Channel 4 ended Big Brother and they did the ultimate Big Brother and they called me up and they wanted, you know, um, would I go in it initially? I said, yeah, yeah, of course I would go in it. And half an hour later after thinking about it, I thought, you know what? No, I don't need Big Brother now. I'm quite well established in media construction for me. I've done thousands of makeover shows. I attend trade shows where you and I first met in you know, we have endorsements with brands and things. I, I, I don't need really to go back on a, another Big Brother show, potentially lose, and then become a Big Brother loser. And there's hundreds of them. There's probably thousands of Big Brother losers. <laughs> so I thought, you know what? Keep your dignity. Stick there at it. I'm the only ever first Big Brother, and you can't beat that, in my opinion. <laughs> what did your mum and your sister think about your success from Big Brother? And what was it like for them when you were in the house? Uh, they were very super proud of me, both in the house and then certainly when I came out and how my life way then kind of passed out for me, really. They were super pleased. They were a little bit concerned at first because you know was I going to be able to manage with all of this attention and some people can't even manage kind of coming into money you know I was it all of a sudden earning a lot more money than I'd ever earned before and I had all this attention was it going to go to my head could it be a double-edged sword for me really and not turn out as good as it was so as, as a parent and a sister who, who love and care for you it was concerning for them but they did know that I, I had a solid kind of background with my building company so I think the knew I wasn't going to be stupid with it and try and just kind of cash in on it sensibly and kind of make it more longevity as opposed to just hammer everything the first six, 12 months and then it fade away and everybody's fed up with you, you know. Um, so naturally they were caring, concerned a little bit, but overall I would say very pleased and very proud of me. Now, leaving Big Brother, your life, you were thrown into the spotlight. You'd been in the spotlight without really knowing how much of the spotlight you'd been in. But when you left and you got into this huge media frenzy around you, your life suddenly changed. How did it change? What was the, the thing that stands out? It certainly did change. And it changed overnight for me. I think I was probably the last person in Britain to realize the Big Brother show had become very successful, you know, and it had kind of made the first 10 housemates more or less household names, you know. And um, I remember that last night in the Big Brother house and Davina had announced I was the winner and Anna was to to leave the house. And then Big Brother told me, oh, you're going to stay in the house for like another hour or so. And then Davina's going to come into you. I was thinking, really? No, I don't want this. I just want to get out, you know. I've been cooked up in this house for 64 days and nights. I just won out. Anyway, when Davina came in, it was kind of nice to see, you know, a new person. Of course, I've never met Davina before until that point. And then all of a sudden, the camera crew come in. So it was real strange seeing people and just having all this going on around me. And Davina kind of was briefly telling me the show's successful, this, that, and the other. And although the excitement was happening and I was hearing it, it wasn't sinking in. It really wasn't sinking in. I just wanted out. I didn't want to talk to Davina, you know. I just wanted to get out that house, see my friends and family. And, of course, I came out, and you've seen that on the television. It was a live moment, and it was joyful to see my friends, my family, see little Joanna Harris, and, you know, announce to her that I've won it, and I won it for her. And I didn't tell anybody while I was in the house. I didn't mention it at all that I was going to give the money to Joanne. So, you know, it was, it was a nice surprise. That's why it won the best live TV moment of the year. So 
probably 30-odd million people watched it. And little did I know that would path the way out for, for me for the rest of my life. You know, still today, it's, it's talked about and it's talked about in the media and many people remember it. From that moment of excitement with being with Joanne and being with my family, and then all of a sudden, the Big Brother housemates turns up. The cameras went off like, a, you know, five minutes, ten minutes after all that. And then all of a sudden, I was sweeped off my feet away from my friends and family. I was shuttled into this big minibus with about eight bodyguards with a police escort front and back and raced out to the studios at high speeds with blue lights flashing and sirens going. And it was terrifying, Bryn. It was like being, I was being kidnapped, you know. It was all of a sudden, wow, what's happening? Why is this? And I was trying to talk to the security guards who appeared very flustered and panicky and just rushing in a, in a big hurry. Um, and it, it, they were telling me, you know, we've got to get you away from the press, the paparazzis and things. And I was thinking, why? Why? You know, there was there was there must have been 40 or 50 of them behind the railings when I come out with Davina all wanting to take pictures of me. And all the crowds were happy to see me. My family were happy to see me. Why is the agency to get me away from everyone? I don't get it. They raced me to a, a big hotel and we went up the fire stairs, like through the emergency exits. And there was security there waiting for me. And I got rushed into this big suite. And I remember thinking, wow, this suite's big. I've never been in a hotel or a suite as big as this before, you know. And then there was seven or eight people waiting there for me. And they were kind of appearing, looking happy but concerned. And there was a gentleman there called Brett Carr. And I recognized his face. He was the psychoanalyzer. So I spent a lot of time with Brett Carr. He was studying, you know, whether... Myself and the other housemates were, you know, sane and safe enough to be in such an environment like the Big Brother house. So I immediately recognised his face and he had a very calm and soothing voice. And he sat me down and he said, Craig, apologies about the rush getting you away from everybody. You kind of gathered that this programme has been very big and successful. He said, I just wanted to bring you here to explain things to you very calmly so you understood everything and what's going on. His words were, and I can remember them, Bryn, I mean, it brings goose pimples now. They're coming up on my arm just thinking about the words he said to me. And he said, Craig, you know, tomorrow you will be on the front page of every national newspaper in the UK. Every radio station, every news bulletin, every television news will be talking about you. You will be the most talked about person in the UK tomorrow. And that, to hear them words, is terrifying, Bryn. It really, really is terrifying. You got to remember, I never wanted to be famous. I'd never had an ambition to work on television before. All of a sudden, now I am famous. You kind of say, was it a choice of mine or not? Many people ask, you know, well, it was your choice, Craig. You went on the program. Yes, I did go on the program, but I had no idea. Channel 4 had no idea. The production company had no idea how big the show would evolve to. And I just happened to be one of the 10 lucky people who were picked on it and happened to turn out to be the public's choice of the, of the winner. So it, it isn't a bad thing, you know, <laughs> but I was just catapulted into this very unique and, and kind of surreal opportunity and world yeah. that changed my life forever from that day onwards. Don't get me wrong, I had the most fantastic time. However, there's two sides to every coin. And I can honestly say this, and I'll tell you this as a friend, Bryn, I've never felt so lonely in all my life. When you're chaperoned by security and press officers and stylists and, you know, getting taken to a place where there's people greeting you and treating you like royalty, and then you're on a stage performance and there's thousands of people have queued up for hours 
to wait and see you and get a photograph or a signature. Everybody knows your name and everybody's shouting it as loud as they can. All of a sudden, you feel lonely because I didn't have my friends and family there. And it was a, it was a weird, weird, quick learning curve. I had to adapt to this new world that I'd just been dropped into, whether I liked it or not. You know, and in them circumstances, you sink or swim. And I think being very grounded from my upbringing and my, my, my building background and my business life, um, it made me quickly adapt and look at it as what it was. You know, it's a business that I mean, I've just dropped into a different industry that can potentially earn me a lot of money if I behave myself, if I work hard at it, which, you know, most of my life I've worked hard. Well, I still, still all my life I've worked hard, you know, and I don't get myself into to trouble. But I don't get caught anyway. <laughs> but, you know, I try to be as respectful as I can to everyone I work with. And um, it, it's work for me. I've met you quite a number of times over the years. What I notice when I sit down and talk to you, I can talk to you quite normally as sort of peer to peer, I suppose. We can yes. just have a normal chat. You know, we both know what, yeah. it's, what it's like in front of stage and what it's like backstage. And yes. there's a persona that we put on in front of people to what we have in real life, you know? Yes, when I yes. sat in the pub with you, it's amazing the number of people that are pointing to you. There's that guy from Big Brother. There's Craig <laughs> Phillips over there. You say about it being very lonely. Did you find when you left the Big Brother house that you found it hard to trust people? Yes, yes and no, really. I mean, I was, I was very well protected, let's say, you know, from good management and the security guards, you know, who are still personal friends of mine now, we, we experienced a, a journey, you know, that not many people ever get the chance to. And all the weird, wonderful things we went through, you know, we had a good time there. So we, we often chat and catch up about that. So I had trust with the close people around me who worked with me. I had a few people who sell out on you, you know, friends from school, ex-girlfriends, etc., who just want to cash in on your your fame and your success, really, by selling stories. You then very quickly learn who your friends are and who to trust and, you know, what you can and can't do, really, in the industry. I met lots of celebrities on the way, and I, I become good friends with lots of them. A lot of the advice that I can recall, them telling me and warning me about and things, I can see why they were telling me that and why they were giving me some good advice. So it's a funny thing. I often say this to, to my wife, Laura. Being a, and I don't even like to call myself a celebrity or use the word I'm famous or anything. I, I don't like to, to do that, but many people put you in that category. And what I find is whenever I'm talking to other famous people, there's a little bit of a trusting between us that you open up a little bit more, whether it's about the jobs and the roles you're having or the tough times that you're having. It's quite a small, close-knit industry. You know, and I can walk in a place now with my wife that we've never been before, and I see somebody who works on the television. I've never met them before in my life. They spot me, you know me, I spot them, I know them. You say, hi, how are you? And you automatically go over and create a conversation and start chatting about mm. things. And quite often, you know, if you've had five or ten minutes or so, you've got things in common where you're going or what you've done. And if you end up having a beer with them, if it's that type of event that you're at, you end up becoming friends, you swap numbers, you know, or you, you start following each other on social media and then chatting that way, you know. It's the industry that we're in, isn't it, Bryn? Mm. You know, we're, we're doing similar things. You know, we are public performers, let's say, aren't we? Whether you're a racetrack hosting or basically doing pieces to camera or up on stage, doing bits on stage and off stage like myself, we're doing public appearances. So 
you know, it don't matter what kind of level your your celebrity status is or anything, isn't it? We're all in the same industry. So I think by us being in that industry, we automatically become friends, you know, mm. and you and I, we, we, we hit it off straight away as soon as we met, didn't we, you know? Yeah. I had the very lovely pleasure of giving some awards out at the National Television Awards with Barbara Windsor. And she was giving me some real, real good advice about different things. And I remember this one that sticks in my mind. I'm in the Royal Albert Hall. I'm sitting in a dressing room. I'm sitting there with Cliff Richards, right? So that's that's a little bit weird in itself, <laughs> isn't it? But you're having a conversation with Cliff Richards. And who comes walking in the door? Barbara Windsor only brings Lulu in. So now I'm sitting there with these three worldwide superstar successes, right? <laughs> Who have seen it all. They've seen the good, the bad, the ugly of what the industry brings and throws at people. And now I'm sitting there and they're chatting to me about the big brother, they're chatting to me about the do's, the don'ts, what to look out for, what to avoid and things. And Barbara said to me, she said, Craig, television is a fantastic industry when you don't need it. She said, but the moment you need television and you have to rely on it for your livelihood, then all of a sudden it becomes a kind of a double-edged sword then and you start to see the ugly side of the industry. And I thought about that long and hard over the years and over the many years of working with all the, the major terrestrial channels and the sky channels all the way around the world, thousands of makeover shows that I've worked on. I often think to myself, right, here's another show, just been commissioned. I know I've got another 35 days work on this one. It's great, well paid. Will anything come in after it? You know what? I'm not going to worry about it. I don't matter because if my TV career or my media career ends tomorrow, I've still got my hands, my tools to fall back on. And I'm a great builder. You know, I, I know I'm good at what I do. Every year as it goes by, if it ends tomorrow, I look back and think, you know what? I've had a fantastic innings out of it, Bryn. I've earned some good money. I've met some fantastic friends on the way. No regrets. It doesn't matter. I'll be straight back on the tools Monday morning if I have to. You met your wife, Laura, a few yeah. years ago. How did you meet her? Uh, Laura and I were both working on the same TV channel. And she'd been on the show before me. You do live hours throughout the day. And she was scheduled to do another show after me. So she was sitting in the green room. And I'd just come off air. And I'd been to the supermarket and bought myself a load of food. And I looked at her on her own. I think it was getting on in the evening, maybe 7, 8 o'clock at night. And I said, you know, okay. And she went, yeah. And I said, look a little bit hungry there. Do you want some chicken? So <laughs> my wife says that was my first opening line to it. She said, no, thank <laughs> you, I don't. So that was our first encounters, really, of uh, meeting. We sat with each other then that night on and off. And we ended up spending hours and hours chatting there as the night went on. And we just kept in touch then. We swapped numbers. And um, I just finished out a relationship and so had Laura as well, I think a few months prior. And we kept in touch on social media, the odd phone call here and there. And then I was scheduled to do a do the Tough Mothers. I said, do you fancy doing it with She went, yeah, definitely. Put me in. So she came on our team with us. We had a wonderful day. Full of mud. We're exhausted. We were, we were standing outside of my car, getting changed. We had bottles of water, washing ourselves down with a towel, got changed and driving back, you know, a bit battered and bruised. Anyway, she came over to my house and, you know, she had a bath and things like that. She had a bag of all this stuff in and we ended up going out for a meal. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can see where this is going. <laughs> Sounds a little bit wrong, however. Um, <laughs> we, we're married now, you know, it's fine. Laura stayed that night at our house and she kind of hasn't been home since. I, I said to Laura after about a week being in our house, I'm going to marry you one day. 
and we kind of like smirked and laughed about it. But I, I, I thought to myself, she's the type of girl I want to spend the rest of my life with. Not even a year later, I think we were traveling around Asia and over to Australia and I proposed to her on the top of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. <laughs> Got down on one knee. All because she turned your chicken down. Turned my chicken down. It's changed a lot for you if you think about it because you know, married, you've got a daughter, you've got a son on the way. Congratulations, by the way. That's uh, that's the dream, isn't it? One of each. Oh, it is, you know, and everybody says that it's one of each. And when Nelly come along for us, you know, it it is a completely different life for you, it's a game changer, and all focuses just on this beautiful little creature you know that you've created who's now in your arms and you're a hundred percent responsible for and then kind of six twelve months on we were kind of saying well you know we'd love a brother or sister then for Nelly and deep down in, in my kind of selfish reasons I was saying to Laura you know I, I just want to have a, a boy now when I take a box and want to play football with them and things like that not that girls can't do that but I don't know if you know or not I'm the only male left alive now in our family so there's no more male Phillipses in our entire family alive everyone's passed unfortunately so for me to carry on philip's name i need to have a boy so for me having a boy now is kind of a dream come true we've got the best of both worlds we've got nelly now our daughter our little boy due in uh, december congratulations now people sometimes talk about the female body clock don't they with regards to women wanting to have kids did you find that your male body clock was also ticking for me it was a little bit, you know, I'm kind of 47, I need to be having children, I'm 48 now, and I did want to have my two children before I got to 50. What I was a little bit in fear of is when they're teenagers and they're, you know, 13, 15, 18, running around doing the teenager things, I don't want to be that old parent who can't keep up with them. For me now, now having children, my main focus and target is keeping myself fit and healthy, you know, work for me, still it's a major priority in our lives. Laura and I are doing the Mr. and Mrs. DIY and we want to focus our energies on that, but keep it all local, keep it all at our house. We built a studio specifically at our house in a big workshop so I didn't have to race up and down the country, stay in hotels and work at different studios. You know how tiring that can be and time-consuming. And when you've got two young kids, it's the last thing you want to be doing, if I was being honest. So we're trying to build a lifestyle that works around our family and more so on our doorstep so you, I can be at home and be a good dad, you know, bringing the children up. I'm 41, no, 40. And I'm at the same point where, you know, I want to have kids and I'm settled down. I'm very happy and I want to have kids. But I want to have kids soon because I don't want to be like you, that old person yes. that chases yeah. the kids around the park with a Zimmer frame because I can't keep yes. up. You know, I want to be able, yeah, you know, yeah. it's, hard. it's yeah. really important to me to be able to run around a park still. We're kind of similar in that we're, there's not a massive amount of age gap between yourself and me. I don't think our age group will be the same as our parents' age group at 50. You know what I mean? I think 50, yeah, 40, that's right, 40s, that. 30s, yeah, right. et cetera, et cetera. Mm. You've probably got a few more years in your left. You know, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so do I. So do I. God, be a devastating <laughs> podcast, this one. <laughs> <laughs> you said you wouldn't do Big Brother or anything like that again. What about other realities? Strictly or I'm a celeb? Would you do those sorts of things? Yeah, I've gone through stages of my life. I'm a celebrity. For the first kind of 10 or 15 years of it, I was always thinking, no, no, I wouldn't do that now. You know, it's a little bit humiliating what they get the celebs to do and eat and 
things. But then all of a sudden, the last couple of years, I've been thinking, you know what? I would like to give it a little bit of a, a go now. My agents asked me just the other day, they said, have you seen that um, SAS Who Dares Wins? And they're doing celebrity ones and they're kind of putting them through quite grueling mm. tasks and various different conditioning, you know, that SAS people do. And I thought, yeah, you know what? I'd, I'd give one of them reality programs a good go, whether it was in the jungle or or if it was the SAS ones. And then on the other side of that, the more calmer ones, the, the dance ones. I, I like the idea of the ice dancing one. Dancing on ice. That's it, that'll do. That's yeah, it, that's the one. Dancing on ice. I like the idea of that one because, one, I'm not a good dancer, but good at me winter sports. I like me snowboards. I like me skiing. So I think I'd pick up the, the dancing on ice a lot better than I would pick up Strictly Come Dancing. Not good at dancing, but you're pretty good at sliding. So dancing on ice is the one for you. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So, Craig, you've got your production company. You've got your amazing home. And I think that it's great to see that you are still in the public eye, but maybe more on your terms. I think for me, you know, I, I was I was never going to be as famous as I was when I first won Big Brother. So for me, that was the highest I could probably get in, in my peak. And then it was only kind of one way to naturally come down after that. But I think because I had a building background and, you know, I've worked on the thousands of programs, I've managed to keep just a nice stable foundations in the industry that I love, which is the building industry, but just doing it more in the media world, really, you know, and I've just stayed at a nice steady tick over of business um, and that's that's good for me that's all I kind of really want certainly at this point in my life you know I don't need that big big explosion again like we had the first year the big brother Craig thank you very much indeed for giving me all this time on the podcast we talked for my about pleasure, two hours Brent. something like that but Craig <laughs> it's been absolutely amazing to chat to you oh you too Brian. lovely to hear from you mate and thanks for thinking of me on your podcast can't wait to hear it well, me neither. I'm going to have to edit this one down now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good luck with that one, mate. <laughs> you take a week off. Well, there you go. What a lovely guy. If you want to find out more about Craig, you can find him on Instagram and Twitter. Just look up Craig Big Bro and the number one, and you'll find him there, or just search him on any well-known search engine. I'm Bryn Lucas. You've been listening to It's All About Me. Hopefully you enjoyed it. If you did, subscribe and listen to more and tell your friends. If you didn't like it, well, just keep it to yourself. (laughs) 